pleasure to be back here. It's my first sermon back post-baby, so we're praying that Rufus makes no noises. Um, and what we're going to get you to do is, because we're into shifting chairs today, I don't know how this speaker's going to go, but I'm going to attempt to stand over here. If you want to shift, and we're going to face DY Headland and the kind of Collaroy houses up there. So if this echoes, hopefully a bit of movement is helping your brains click into gear and you're ready to um, hear what God might have to say to us as a community. So we're continuing in our series in the Beatitudes. Um, and today we've got verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I wanted to start by sharing with you um, a phrase or a prayer or a thought or an attitude that I've been pondering a little bit over the last probably couple of years. Um, and it was sort of articulated by someone to Jamie recently and I thought that's like that's what I've been thinking about. And the prayer that I think is possibly the most dangerous prayer that we can pray, dangerous for our hearts and dangerous for the way we live. And the prayer is, why is this happening to me? It's a prayer cried out in the middle of suffering. It's a hypothetical question perhaps directed at the universe, a sentence whispered to those closest to you, a remark in frustration. And the often unspoken part B of this is, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Is essentially a worldview. It explains how I think things should work. It reveals that I believe that somehow I have earned a certain kind of life that I believe that my circumstances should reflect the kind of person that I think that I am. It says that I believe that I deserve a good life. The good life has been one of the major themes of philosophy and philosophers in history, in fact. Along with what is the good life, philosophers have sought to, to answer the questions, who is a good person and how can I be a good person? Interestingly, the Beatitudes, look at this. We could consider the Beatitudes as Jesus' take on the good life. It's about flourishing. What does kingdom flourishing look like? And I thought I'd go to my resident flourishing expert, Freya, who's named her business with that term and I thought well she might have done some reading on it and so I asked her what is your take on flourishing you've obviously got this word close to your heart what do you see when you see this term and she said that flourishing is about being in an environment that enables you to thrive despite some of the sin and brokenness and circumstances we see around us and then she said this oddly death gives way to life, and this is true when growing plants as well as humans. Think of composting. We also have silkworms at our house at the moment, and sort of part of their life cycle is that death is part of the birth of new life. And when we die to sin and truly draw near to the Lord and have a kingdom mindset, there we can flourish. Even death 
doesn't discount flourishing. And we see this picture in the Beatitudes. That happiness or blessedness or joyfulness in the kingdom is not tied to circumstance. The kingdom is not for those whose circumstance lands them there. The kingdom is especially for those like you who are mourning or poor in spirit or hungry or merciful. Flourishing are the ones that extend mercy, forgiveness or pity, compassion, active kindness toward others, for they will be shown this in return. So what is it to be merciful? To be merciful is more than its opposite. It's more than simply avoiding right judgment or punishment. It's more than just letting someone off the hook. To be merciful is to show active kindness towards someone. It's to be tender-hearted, forgiving and compassionate. Did you know that one of the most common attributes ascribed to Jesus is compassion? In the years of his ministry, his biographers chose to describe him frequently as compassionate. When he met people, when he met their circumstances, he had compassion on them. Which is sort of surprising, isn't it? That this God-man who had the very mind of God, who could see all the surrounding circumstances, had compassion. He felt for people. He felt with people. The English Dictionary defines compassion as sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. And the Latin origin of the word compassion describes someone who suffers with. Jesus was concerned about the sufferings of the people that he met. You know the words that kind of cross your mind in adulthood that you kind of hoped never would but do? Words like, serves you right, told you so, see what happens when you don't listen to me, I knew that would happen. You know those words that you never say to your child but you often think? They're the words that you're tempted to say when your child's on the floor crying right after climbing on the thing that you told them not to climb on. They're the words that you mutter under your breath when a colleague tells you and they get caught out for something that you advise them not to do. Perhaps they're the words you yell at the television when you hear of the misfortune of someone that you utterly despise. These words are the opposite of compassion. These words didn't cross the mind of Jesus. Jesus did not delight in people's sufferings, misfortune, in people stuffing up. Jesus had compassion. Jesus was merciful. I find it very telling that the bookends to the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story of the man beaten on the side of the road, passed by by two religious folk, helped up, and looked after by someone who was considered his enemy. The bookends to this parable are the question, so who is my neighbour? And the answer, the one who showed mercy. The way Jesus wants us to love our neighbour is by being merciful. 
One of the commentators on this parable summed up the merciful as having an eye for distress, a heart of pity, making an effort to help in spite of enmity. To show mercy like the Samaritan of the parable is to see distress, to feel something for that person and to lean in to help despite how you might feel about that person. In the last few weeks, I've come across the name Fred Rogers a few times. I had never heard of him until a couple of weeks ago when I saw a trailer and he just keeps popping up everywhere. Who's heard of Fred Rogers? There we go. Fred Rogers is a well-known television personality for having one of the longest running children's television programs in the US. Only when he finished did he then get superseded by Sesame Street. But his television show was called Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. Does anyone watch Daniel Tiger's Neighbourhood? Augie? It's based on his show. A documentary on him and his television show that he'd been running is, is being released or has been released this year. Fred Rogers' show presented children with examples of inclusion, love, kindness, and compassion. And the song he used to sing, Won't You Be My Neighbour, echoes the words of this parable and reminds us of what Jesus meant when he talked about being a neighbour. And Matt Stanton has been reading his biography, and because I didn't have time to finish an entire book before prepping this sermon, I called him and asked him all about it, and he told me about one of the neighbourly practices that Fred Rogers grew up doing with his family. So picture this, Fred Rogers is an only child, he's in a very wealthy family, and they used to... Um, sit around the dinner table and do this practice that sort of started to imprint this idea of inclusion and compassion upon Fred well before he started his television show. Basically, his dad ran a business and as the sort of owner of the business, he would wander around and meet his staff. But he wasn't there to just meet them or to see how they were doing in their jobs. He was on the hunt for need. He would talked to his staff members and his ear was pricked for need. And little Fred was told when he goes to school, you're on the hunt for need. I want you to find stories of need. People struggling, people without food on the table, kids that don't have the right school shoes, etc, etc. I want you to find it. And every night at the dinner table, they would share their stories. They would come with their report of the needs that they had found. And Fred's mother had organised a network of churches and she would take these stories from little Fred and his dad and take them to the network of churches and mobilise them to be neighbours. They would say, there's this kid at this school who's connected with that school who can help there. There's a need over here. There's a family over here that need us to provide meals, or etc., etc. And this network of churches were enabled to do neighbourly practices because of these stories that this family had collected. It is such a beautiful picture of the application of this beatitude and of this parable. Who is my neighbour? Anyone. Everyone. Even your enemy. 
How can I love my neighbour? Find them, listen to them, be on the lookout for need, and then show mercy, compassion, forgiveness, pity, generosity, and active kindness toward them. So how can we do this? How can we be merciful? Other than obviously copying Fred Rogers' awesome little practice, other than doing that, how, how can we model that? How can we find ourselves among those flourishing because we extend loving kindness and wholehearted compassion toward people? And I believe that before we copy Fred Rogers' family, there is another crucial starting point. And the starting point is to understand our position before God a little better. And this has to do with being the recipient of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. If our worldview leads us to a place where we say, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Then we've in some way already discounted ourselves from this beatitude. When I look around me and I have conversations with people, I see this everywhere. We're in a beautiful part of the world with successful, happy, comfortable people all around us. And those that I come across, and including myself, in some ways kind of believe that we're good enough to get by. But if you read the Bible, it's not at all the picture that we are painted. The big story of the Bible is a perfect God chasing after a people completely incapable of holding up their end. We are entirely selfish, unfaithful, distracted, sinful, tempted, impatient, etc., etc. I want to read a passage from Matthew that comes later on that kind of illustrates this beatitude beautifully. It's Matthew 9, 10 to 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. If we're all good, if we've got this, if we're killing it at life, then we have no need for mercy. In fact, we're going to repel it because we're determined to show that we've earned God's grace and God's favour. And so as Jesus said, I've not come for the healthy. I'm not here to waste my time with those who think they're all good. I'm here for those people that know they need a doctor. I have come to show mercy towards those that know they need mercy. I'm reading Me Christianity at the moment by C.S. Lewis, and he puts it this way. Christianity has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need forgiveness. It is after 
you've realised that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law and that you've broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you're sick, you will listen to the doctor. And what does Jesus mean when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? Here Jesus quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Centuries before, Hosea had condemned the Jews for attempting to exercise, um, to attempting to excuse and cover over their idolatry and their oppression of the poor by offering prescribed animal sacrifices. Hosea was speaking against an era where people felt they could do what they wanted, provided they followed through on the religious rituals. It was a system of exchange. I sacrifice, God forgives. I give, I receive. And Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. However, like, don't we kind of see an exchange in this beatitude, you might ask? I mean, it says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Don't we see an exchange happening here? You give mercy, you receive it. It's kind of a nice little neat formula. So if you want to receive mercy from God, then you just give mercy to others and tick the box. Tip the tap. The problem with this is that earned mercy would be a contradiction of terms. It actually doesn't exist. If mercy is earned, it's not mercy. It's a wage. If somewhere in our heart we believed we've earned a good life, earned God's blessing and deserve a happy existence, we're calling on God for our wages. True mercy from God and toward others is a completely undeserved gift. That is what makes it mercy. The preconditions for mercy is that the one receiving it doesn't deserve it. And this is what the Beatitude is showing us. That those living a good life in the kingdom, those blessed, happy, flourishing, they're not blessed or happy or flourishing because of who they are, but in spite of. It's those with nothing to offer who are able to receive the kingdom. The merciful are those with empty hands who can receive God's mercy knowing it's completely undeserved and from this very posture can offer active kindness toward others. I'm going to invite Jed and Emma and Co to come up. But I want us to stand and I want you to close your eyes. And as you stand with your eyes closed, I want you to open your hands. Now, if you don't feel comfortable sort of standing there with your hands open, that's fine. But just in your mind's eye, I want you to stand in a posture of emptiness. 
And as you stand there with empty hands, with nothing to offer, perhaps all you have is a week's worth of mess-ups and step-ups, I want you to listen to these words. Exodus 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Psalm 86. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. And Ephesians 2. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do.